0: Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, media shorts on law and courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation Courts, which produces this series. It's not uncommon for the losing litigant in a civil case to complain that the judge was biased against them. Judges after all are people too, and we expect that most people are biased in some way. We don't usually think the same about ourselves though, which ends up being its own kind of bias. So are judges biased? How, and if so, what can be done? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Rachel Godsell, Professor of Law and Chancellor's Social Justice Scholar at Rutgers Law School. Rachel, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, very happy to be here and to address this important topic.
0: Let's start with a definition of the kind of bias that might apply to judges. What what are we talking about here? Well,
1: let's first talk about just what bias means. So a bias generally refers to a preference for and aversion against, and that can be a preference for chocolate ice cream or a preference for a sports team or all sorts of preferences or aversions. And so bias simply means that when we talk about bias with concern, we're generally talking about a preference for or an aversion against a group or set of persons or some idea identity that a group or set of persons has that's usually what we're concerned about. I generally don't think we care what ice cream judges like. So then we think about, are we talking about biases we know about explicit biases which we can name, and oftentimes there'll be things that we'll stand by, or biases that we don't know about, and those are called implicit biases. So there's bias, and then there's explicit bias, and implicit bias, which would you like to continue to discuss?
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about implicit bias. How is it possible that I might not know my own biases?
1: That does seem odd, because we generally think of ourselves as knowing ourselves certainly better than anyone else, and The reason that we don't necessarily know the biases that we hold is because of the way our brains operate. Our conscious brains, that which we know is basically the slowest part of our brain. The way the science currently tells us that we know about sort of 40 bits of information consciously while the rest of our brain, the unconscious is doing 11 million bits of information in the same amount of time. So most of what we do, we're actually doing unconsciously. And that makes sense You're in California. So most of the people who are in California drive. And we all remember the difference between learning to drive, which we had to do very consciously, and once we know how to drive, when we just move along. And that's the way our brains generally operate is much of what's happening is happening at the unconscious level.
0: Can you give me an example of implicit bias? Sure.
1: So when, again, when we talk about implicit bias toward people, we're talking about the unconscious associations, the characteristics, stereotypes that we may have about a group of people, or attitudes, likes or dislikes that we may hold about a group of people. And a very common implicit bias is actually against people who are elder or old. So there's it's, it's very very common for us to have fairly warm attitudes toward people who are old, but the set of characteristics or associations that most people across the world actually have about people who are old is actually linked to incompetence, and so that's just because of all of the images that we've seen, you know, throughout our lives that. Li- sort of associate people who are old with a set of incompetences. So that's a very common implicit bias that people have that we don't know about ourselves and that consciously we might say, well, no, that's not how I think about people, but our brain has actually been registered. And I can share with you how that this is actually a very common form of implicit bias.
0: Does implicit bias matter in terms of behavior? Absolutely. And so let's talk a little bit about
1: the question you asked earlier, how would we know if we, someone has we have, anyone else has an implicit bias, and how we then might know whether or not these implicit biases can affect behavior. So the most common form of measuring implicit bias, because of course, you can't state something that exists in the back of your brain and just No, and that's exactly the point. So what was created was what's called the implicit association or implicit attitude test. And any of us can find that on a website called Project Implicit. And what this sort of test does is it allows us to see, does our brain as quickly register preferences for a particular group versus another? So it's literally like a computer game where you press a button for if you can associate a positive word with a face linked to a particular group and you press a button if you can link a negative word. And if we were neutral, we had no bias. We would presumably be able to do that at the same time. And with some groups, we can. We can press positive words and negative words just as fast. But what emerged in now more than a decade of research is that with respect to particular groups about whom there are negative stereotypes, the vast majority of us hold implicit biases, oftentimes totally inconsistent with our conscious values. And so then, of course, the next question was, to your point, well, does it matter? What does it matter what you're doing on, you know, what's equivalent to a computer game? Research has but now been done to determine whether or not what's happening at the implicit level is actually correlated with our behavior. And what now a meta-analysis, which is essentially research of the research, so it looks at all of the studies that have been done to see do our implicit biases affect our behavior, what they've shown is that the correlation between our implicit biases and our behavior is stronger than the correlation between lead paint and essentially the effect on childhood development. So that's, it's a small correlation when you look at it scientifically, but if we think about the sort of whether or not we have reason to believe it, If we believe and are are worried about lead paint in children, we should believe and be worried about the potential effect of our implicit biases on our decisions and or our behaviors or how we treat people.
0: So we can get rid of lead paint. And I wanna return to how we might get rid of some of our implicit bias or at least counteract the effects of implicit bias on our behavior. But first, let me ask you, are judges biased in the same way?
1: Judges are human, and biases are not a result of anyone's character. They're a result of how our our brains operate. So yes, judges have implicit biases, just like the rest of us. And there have been some law professors and social scientists who have done work with judges specifically. And not surprisingly, judges have shown basically the same level of implicit biases as anyone else. And that's studies within this country, implicit bias has also been measured at the global level and they exist across the globe. Again, our brains essentially operate consistently across the globe and judges are part of the part of the human, uh, you know, judges are human just like the rest of us. So yes, both generally speaking and specifically, judges are vulnerable to holding implicit biases just like the rest of us.
0: What then can judges do about their own implicit bias? I assume it's not as easy as just removing lead paint and saying, oh I'm not going to be implicitly biased anymore. So
1: again, as you know, it's actually not been very easy to remove the lead from the paint and so to our lead from our water and so too it's it's in no way easy to eliminate implicit biases and in fact it's impossible because if you think about, all of the different identity groups that people hold, there are stereotypes and attitudes linked to a whole bunch of them. So oftentimes I mentioned age earlier, but the implicit biases that we often have reason to be most concerned about with judges are those that have been linked to differential outcomes in judicial decisions. And so that's where race, religion, gender, and some of the other categories come to mind as areas to be concerned about. And so, The question that you asked, how do we get rid of biases? We can't get rid of them entirely, but we can do two things. We can both minimize them, meaning we minimize the stereotypes that we have about particular groups. And there's a whole set of steps that we can take that I'm happy to share to minimize the biases that we have. But even more importantly, we would say for judges and anyone else, all the rest of us who exercise power that matters, is we can override them. So there's minimizing, crucially important, and even more important because it, you know, judicial decisions, and judicial behavior happens, you know, is happening every minute right now. Judges are making decisions and engaging with people. So override is even more important. So I'm happy to describe both of those actually.
0: Yeah. Why don't you start with minimizing? Okay, so the
1: way that we can most effectively and judges can most effectively minimize behavior is first of all, by acknowledging and having basically humility to recognize that we are vulnerable to implicit biases. So that's the beginning. Awareness is the beginning, but of course, knowing doesn't actually mean anything unless we take further steps. So a set of researchers led by Patricia Devine at University of Wisconsin, and now someone named Patrick Forisher, have identified a set of steps that if we take them, they can begin to break the monolith of stereotypes about particular groups. And that includes initially figuring out and being aware of which groups we're most vulnerable to bias toward, because that'll be different for each of us. The second is to identify what are the behaviors that we're most concerned about so we can begin to focus on those. Then, and this next is actually kind of exciting because it's also a positive form of social practice. It's called individuation, meaning instead of presuming that we know about people based upon their identities, we ask questions to get to know them as unique individuals. And what happens as we do that consistently is our brain, again, begins to break the monolith. Then the fourth is what's called perspective taking. You learn information about people from groups other than your own or about whom you have these, again, risk of bias, you learn information, and you start to think, what would it be like to live a day in that person's shoes? Not as myself, if it's me, but as another identity group. Again, as a white woman, I would think, what would it be like to be you know, a black woman my age, otherwise the same? What might be some differences in her experience? So that perspective taking can be really powerful. And the final, and this is in some ways gonna perhaps sound surprising, intergroup contact the more contact that we have with people in groups about whom we might have bias with frequency at the peer to peer level, what social scientists have found, that is the most powerful and most long lasting way to truly minimize the way our brains may generalize about a particular group. And when I, and I do a lot of work with judges on this topic and I've had judges say, well, I have lots of interaction with people from other groups and essentially, so I'm good. And I say, wonderful judge, in what context? Well, in my courtroom. That doesn't work because that's not peer-to-peer. That's when the judge has power. And also that's when judges often tend to be seeing people in both their most vulnerable and oftentimes, sadly, the most stereotypical context in which they may engage. And so for judges, just like any of the rest of us, these interactions have to be in context where people are their peers. And so community associations, you know, sort of religious moments, you know, going to church or synagogue or mosques, um, again, interacting with this sort of peer parents of one's children, those are all the opportunities where our brain really begins to sort of shift away from monoliths. So that's a set of steps. That if we engage in this regularity, it has been shown to lead to a concern about discrimination for particular groups, a minimization of biased decisions in the hiring context, a whole set of really positive effects. But as you can tell from my long answer, that's a lot of work, and that's long-term life work. So would you like me to talk about what a judge or any of the rest of us can do tomorrow or in the next hour to actually prevent bias from affecting decisions.
0: That'd be great. So yeah, what uh, can judges do to overcome any remaining implicit bias?
1: So the first and sort of most obvious, but most important is once we're aware of the risk, when we slow down, and take stock of the potential that a decision that we're about to make or a behavior we're about to engage in might be affected by bias, the very act of slowing down is the beginning of override. And that actually makes sense because the implicit bias that we're talking about is one that's inconsistent with someone's conscious values. So that process of slowing down can actually be very powerful. Now, what of course is critical because we won't necessarily always remember to slow down is having a set of protocols. The more that you have a set of protocols where you have predetermined what the fair outcome will be in a given set of context, the more confident that you can be that your decisions are fair. Uh, Jerry Kong has written a set of steps for judges to use as bench cards, where it invites them to slow down, it invites them to consider the criteria that they've already determined are the most useful for identifying and arriving at fair decisions, and then using data to really check oneself to determine, am I treating like situations like, or am I actually deviating and treating, again, the same situation differently depending upon the identity of the group. So slowing down, following protocols, and then using data to make sure that we're accountable, those can actually be incredibly powerful to make sure the judges are overriding bias.
0: So last question, will all that work?
1: So there's actually quite a bit of evidence to suggest that that does have the potential to work. The most direct evidence is actually found in the medical field where medical residents who who prior to learning any of these strategies were given identical patient files, those medical residents who, who using that same implicit association test, that IAT, who showed levels of bias, were at risk of recommending different treatment in this instance based upon race. So black patients who had a certain heart condition were at risk of not getting the gold standard treatment. The residents were deviating from the protocol. Years later, after residents are given these set of steps, slow down, follow protocols, be aware of your biases. When there's clarity in that protocol, the relevance of bias literally was eliminated. So this, these are actually, as simple as they may sound, there's an enormous amount of power in slowing down, following protocol, being aware of the risk of bias, and using data to be accountable.
0: Rachel, thanks so much for being on the show and for discussing judicial bias.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation in Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at Hastings.edu/CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.